0: going to teach something you've never ever heard before though. So the church has done an incredible job of teaching that Jesus is the way, the way to the Father, the way to the kingdom of heaven. We've done an incredible job of teaching that Jesus is the life, that he is the way to the good life. If you have sin or guilt or shame, you can get rid of those and trade it for joy through Jesus. What the church has done a really, really, really bad job of doing is teaching that Jesus is the truth. So Tom, if you will go and hit that first slide for me. So we have some goals tonight. First, what I want to do is help you understand the war that we're fighting, because we are in a war. We are in a war of truth. And throughout all of Christian history, Christians have been persecuted in one way or another. Usually that's been physical, so I used the example last week. I know a teacher at Unity over there named Mitch Jolly who who knows missionaries who have been grenaded by Muslims. Like they throw grenades in the house because they're Christians living there. Like that's been the traditional persecution against Christians, but that is going by the wayside in the next 50 to 100 years. The way that Christians will be persecuted in the future is that we will be slandered and denounced and truth will be taken away from us. So tonight I want to help you understand the war we're fighting is a war for truth. And and get this, it's probably, the stuff we're talking about probably isn't going to help your neighbor. Like Gary said to me Sunday, I probably can't go up to my neighbor and start talking about thermodynamics. You're right, Right? you're right. The war we're fighting is probably not for your neighbor in some of these situations. It's probably for your children and for your grandchildren. Because understand this, I don't care how old your kid is, they will experience some of the stuff that we're talking about in the next 10 years. If your kid is going into middle school this year, I don't care if they're 11, in the 6th grade, do not truly know how to think for themselves yet, they will hear arguments against the existence of God. They will hear arguments for evolution, for an old earth, saying that we're just smart monkeys, have no spirit, that Jesus absolutely did not die for us, and that there is no redemption. They will hear that. And I'm going to guess, it doesn't matter how old that kid or grandkid is, Like if you just had a baby, like it just popped out and you were like, hey, I think we need to go hear Brady tonight, and you just walked in, in the next 10 years, that kid is going to hear arguments against Christianity. And in 99 out of 100 times in the past, the parents or the church members have been unprepared to fight those. So the first thing we need to do is understand what this war is for. It's for your children, for your grandchildren, for those you love. Because one day, one day, someone is going to come to you for answers. And if you're not there to provide them, they could lose their soul for eternity. That's what's at stake here. So we understand the war. The second thing we need to do is equip ourselves for battle. Now, I want to draw from the story of Gideon here. When God calls Gideon mighty warrior, that's hilarious because he's not. Gideon is like, look, when God says mighty warrior to Gideon, Gideon's like, hey, I said to my buddies, like, someone splashed water on me. That's not what happened. Like, Gideon is terrified. So the first thing God does is, God shows Gideon the truth. Last week, we looked at the truth, how to prove that God exists, how to know just a few pieces that the Bible is a reliable document, how to know that evolution isn't true. This week, what we're going to do is get rid of our fear. And do you remember when God was talking to Gideon before the battle, what God says to Gideon? Gideon, are you afraid? See the puddle? Like, yeah, I'm afraid. You remember what God says? Great. Go to church, go to the altar, pray with the pastor. That's not what God tells him. Okay, just get your buddy, get in a prayer circle, and pray it out. That's not what God tells Gideon. God tells Gideon, I want you to go into the camp of the enemy. Tonight, what we're going to do to get rid of our fears is we're going to go into the camp of the enemy. I want to show you what other faiths, particularly the the faith of naturalism or atheism, which is a religion, what they say about our beliefs We're going to look at, and I'm about to show you some of the arguments against the existence of God. We're going to look at arguments against the young earth. We're going to look at arguments saying that that truth is relative, that what's true for you is not true for me. And point number three, what's amazing about this is that when we shine light, the enemy begins to fight itself. You remember when Gideon surrounded the army, God didn't say, hey, go in, guns blazing, big boy, I got you. What did Gideon do? He's got these lanterns. In these pots, he shatters the pots, shines light on the enemy, and the enemy destroys itself. All that we're going to do tonight is shine some light on the enemy's arguments, and I guarantee you they are going to destroy themselves. They are going to annihilate themselves. Because when you have a belief that's not based on truth, Jesus, then it just crumbles when the light is shined upon it. So, we are going to understand the war, equip ourselves for battle, use the enemy's weapons, and then I'm going to give you some um, just practical tips for how to improve your apologetics. Now, Tom, go ahead and go to the next slide for me. This can work two ways, so, and, and I'm going to leave the choice up to all of you. So I think it would be really fun to um, have some audience feedback. So these are, the tip, these are the topics we're going over tonight, the existence of God, the age of the universe, and whether or not absolute truth exists. I think it would be super fun, totally don't have to do this, for you to gather in groups, elect a spokesperson, and then as I discuss these topics, you give me a Christian answer to it. And of course, I'll give you the true answer afterwards. So for those of you who think it might be horrible to gather in groups and and give me an answer, the guy who knows all the questions and the answers, in front of the whole church, you're right, it's going to be terrible. But those who participate are probably going to get more out of this than anyone else. So would anyone like to do that? It's totally fine if not. Anyone? Okay, how about this? Three of you. Three of you. That's okay. How about this? Everyone who's interested, if you would gather in this middle row right here. It's okay? No worries. If you, Yeah, if you're, yeah, yeah. There you go. This is an opportunity to defend your faith, to challenge yourself, to learn more about what you believe, because understand this, when your kid or grandkid comes to you and said, hey, someone told me today that God can't be evil and good, at the, that God can't be good and powerful at the same time, you're not going to be able to come to me, and you're not going to be able to go to Gary or my father or, or David Humphreys. You're going to have to know the answers to these questions. So if you would like to do that, feel free to go towards the middle at any time. You middle row, elect a spokesperson. Just one is fine. It doesn't matter. And it cannot be my dad. (laughs) Anyone other than him. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. As long as it's not him. So the way this is going to work is I'll give you the arguments for the existence, or I'll give you the arguments that others say, and then you'll kind of give me a little bit of a rebuttal. And I'll, yeah, there you go. And then I'll kind of, Uh, I'll I'll explain further. Does that make sense? It won't be embarrassing. It won't be difficult. Nothing. Okay. Y'all good? Perfect. Great. So the first thing we're going to talk about is the existence of God. How people disprove God. There's two main arguments. The first one is the most common, but it's kind of going out of vogue right now. Now, if any of you have seen any of the recent uh, Superman, Batman movies, this was featured in uh, the first Superman and Batman movie. Lex Luthor was talking to Superman. He was trying to get Superman to kill Batman. And what he said is God cannot be both good and powerful at the same time. Now, here's how this argument works. So we're talking to a non-believer. They say, do you believe that God can do anything? Yes, yes, of course I do. Do you believe that God wants good things, that he only wants good things? Yes, yes, of course I do. So God can eliminate all evil. Yes, that's right. God wants to eliminate all evil. Mm-hmm, that's true. Why doesn't God eliminate all evil? If God is able to eliminate evil and God wants to eliminate evil, then he would eliminate evil, right? Therefore, God is either not all-powerful, or he is not all-loving. He's not all-good. God may exist. What if God's the bad guy? So this one is pretty easy to disprove, and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm giving you all a chance to kind of formulate your arguments for what you're going to say to me. That's okay. This one's easy to disprove. So it's funny because this argument only works for, for a non-loving God. So Allah doesn't love? Sure, this argument disproves Allah. Awesome, I'll take it. Hey, I'll take the small win. So what God's love requires, God's love requires that he gives us a choice. God's love means that he will not, he can, but he will not force us into any action. He will not force us to disobey him. And what that means is when we make choices, we have to take responsibility for those choices. And people try and, and cop out of this. So they say, oh, so God's okay with the Holocaust then. Or God's okay with everything Stalin did, killing millions of people, thousands. By the, you're saying God's okay with that? In fact, it's pretty interesting. Uh, the, some of the most terrible regimes on earth, Mao Zedong, Soviet Russia, uh, the Nazis, were atheist organizations. <laughs> But God requires us to take responsibility for our actions. So we look and we say, well, God can't be good or no one would ever have cancer. Now, what God's saying is this is the effects of your sin. And what God offers us through the, Jesus after death is a way out of all of that. So God can be good. God can be powerful. But if he is good and powerful, he must also be loving because he forces us to take responsibility. So, now I will let my row here. What is your best argument for the existence of God? Now, it doesn't have to disprove this, just for the existence of God. There you go. Talk about that for a second. I'll go ahead and start giving some feedback on the next thing. Oh, hey, y'all all involved. Awesome, awesome, cool. So that's currently the most popular argument for the for the non-existence of God. Now that argument's kind of going out of vogue. Uh, What's coming more and more and more is what's called the argument from improbability. So we're going to talk about this in just a second. What is your answer? Time is up. Yep. (laughs) Clock's ticking, baby. What you got? Perfect. There you go. That's good. That's what we need. So what's your best argument for the existence of God? Just God existing in general? Uh, DNA. DNA. No kidding. Give me. I mean, do, give I, me. I bulldog, so. Can you do it in 30 seconds? No, well, you know, it's, it comes down to,
1: <coughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it comes out with, with, with our DNA as we break it down and we see uh, the existence of, of the protein. Create. And then we see that with DNA, uh, if you have evolution, DNA actually would have to improve. But in actuality, what we see is it actually dies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. okay.
0: Great. Good response. Awesome. So, so what he essentially said is that uh, things such as DNA are so complex that there's no physical agent to really bring those together. Therefore, we must have some sort of creator. This is uh, in part what's called the cosmological argument. We talked about it last week, that all created things, we look at buildings and we say there must be a builder. And we look at paintings and say there must be a painter. And we look at order. We see uh, 12 eggs together. We see uh, all the Cokes lined up in the supermarket. We know there was an orderer. Well, in the universe we see structures, planets and stars and galaxies. We see beauty, sunsets on the beach, or um, they've recently come out with, with the first photo ever of a black hole. Amazing. It's kind of low quality, but it's amazing. We see order in the universe. Planets revolving. We see the laws of physics being stable. That's called the cosmological argument. That is the most common argument for the existence of God. Here's the problem with it. Tom, go ahead and go to the next slide for me. It's what they call the argument from improbability. And it sounds really, really good 75% of the way. People are talking to us and they're saying, so um, you think that it's impossible for something to come from nothing. Yes, absolutely, that's perfect, yes, absolutely. So the more complex something is, the less likely it is to happen on its own. So for example, if, if a tornado goes through a junkyard, it's not gonna form a 747, that's super complex, right? Okay, sure. So the more complex something is, the less likely it is to happen on its own. Well, the universe is the most complex thing in the world. Therefore, it's the most unlikely to happen on its own. These are atheists talking. We're saying, yeah, buddy. Like, hey, this guy's about to, like, I'm about to send somebody to you, baby. Like, this sounds awesome. So here's how this argument goes. Well, if the universe is the most complex thing and the most unlikely thing to exist, and God created the universe, then God must be more complex than the universe. Okay? All right, sure. Therefore, it's even less likely that God exists. If God is the most complex thing, then God is also the most unlikely thing to exist. Therefore, we're not saying that God doesn't exist, but we're saying it's very, very unlikely. This came about in about the 1980s from a guy named Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion. I did read it, um, and this argument kept me up for a while. But it has some problems to it. Tom so I'm going to hit the next slide for me. So the first is probability does not reflect reality. So we can say the universe is unlikely. God is even more unlikely. And you know what? I can agree with that. I feel safe agreeing with that. Sure, it is very unlikely that God exists. It's very unlikely that we're here, but we're here. It can be unlikely that the universe exists, and it can be unlikely that God exists, but what we know is that that probability did not reflect reality. We exist, we are here. Therefore, there was some first, there was some starting cause. So probability does not reflect reality. The second problem with this argument is how we define God. We talked about the first and second laws of thermodynamics last week. The first law of thermodynamics, short dummy version, is this. Energy cannot be created or destroyed. Something has always been here, even before what naturalists call the Big Bang. Before Genesis 1-1, something was here. What is it? Is it physical? The second law of thermodynamics gives us our answer. In a closed system, energy is always being lost. It's always moving towards entropy, more chaos. The first law says something's always been here. The second law says it wasn't physical. So really... What people have to believe, whether they're Christians or even if they're atheists, is before time started at the Big Bang, something existed. So all that really matters about this argument is how we define what God is. If we say, oh yeah, God's some big bearded guy in this guy who loves smiting people, like does it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, then okay, sure, maybe that's maybe that doesn't exist. But if we define God as an eternal, all-powerful being that has control over the physical realm, everyone agrees on that. Because what even atheists agree is something was here before the Big Bang. It was one point in space, so it didn't have width or depth, and it probably didn't have mass to it, but it contained all of mass inside of it. Being outside of time, it is eternal. Having all of mass, it has power over the physical realm. That's God. So we can say, sure, it's improbable that God exists. That's, that's fine with me. I'll even agree with you. It is really unlikely that God existed. It is really unlikely that the universe started on its own. But probabilities don't matter. And when we define God the right way, everyone believes in that. The most hardcore, Bible-hating, atheist, agnostic, don't care what they are, will agree with you. On laws one and two of thermodynamics, something has always been here, and it wasn't the physical realm. Perfect. It's outside of time, has all matter inside of it. That's what we call God. And then the third problem with the improbability theory is is from the atheist's own mouth. So there's one way of describing the universe because when you get really big, like galaxies or superclusters, or when you get really small, like black holes, math kind of goes out the window. We have no clue what happens. So one of the ways uh, we have of describing the universe when, it, when math just goes out the window is what we call string theory. Now, this is actually one of the weaknesses of my argument from uh, the first and second laws of thermodynamics, because what string theory says is that it's possible that there are an infinite number of universes. Now, that's pretty nuts. So in this universe, humanity has two legs. There is a universe out there for humanity has three legs or we have three arms, or we have 11 eyes because there are an infinite number of universes and therefore all things exist. So this is a problem with my theory because we have an infinite number of universes, then we're not in a closed system. Um, and I can go into all the details of that, but you'd probably fall asleep. So anyways, one of the big, big falling outs of string theory is that it's untestable. It's generally agreed that there is no way we will ever know if there are multiple universes. And if we can never know it, and it contradicts all the present evidence, then we have no reason to believe it. But naturalists believe that outside of this universe, there are an infinite number of universes. You tell me how that is more unlikely than God is. So we could talk about improbabilities all day long. What that argument, the greatest argument against the existence of God, really boils down to, if you can say it in just a few words, is where did God come from? And just because we don't have an answer to that doesn't mean that there isn't an answer to that. For example, does anyone know how many fingers I'm holding up behind my back? No, you don't. But that doesn't mean I'm not holding up fingers. Just because we don't know the odds of God existing and we don't know the odds of the universe existing, doesn't mean that there isn't a God. This argument really boils down to just trickery of words, and it falls flat when exposed to the light. Because when it comes down to it, we all believe in the most unlikely thing ever, the beginning of the universe. And we all agree on that. So this argument truly falls on its face. Tom, let's go to the next slide. Let's talk about the age of the universe for a second. Now, this is a a pretty big topic for Christians. Really, this boils down to, is evolution true or not? Did we come from monkeys or no? Now, I'm, on, I'm firmly on the side that no, we did not. So I, I do think the earth is young. I don't think it's 6,000 years. I think Genesis probably skipped a few generations. Jews had a tendency to do that. But I think we're probably short of 20-ish thousand years. Doesn't really matter. Numbers aren't really important there. What is important is how we know that the universe isn't old. So the most popular way of doing this is called radiometric dating or carbon dating. And there are hundreds, thousands of incredible resources online that you can read about that, about all the problems that carbon dating has. You can literally Google carbon dating problems. If you have a phone or know how to use Facebook, you have enough knowledge to Google carbon dating problems. I don't have time to go into all of them because it's super common. I promise you can read about it online for hours and days and years until you are sick of carbon dating. The more common argument now, and the, the one that less and less Christians have an answer to, is what we call the starlight problem. It works like this. So light travels really, really fast, 186,000 miles per second. It's so fast that every second light spins around the Earth seven and a half times at the Earth's thickest point, the equator. Light is super-duper fast, but it's not fast enough. For every light year we look out into space, and there are a lot of light years, we're looking back one year in time. So if something Alpha Centauri, the closest star to us, is four light years away, when we look at it, we're looking four years into the past. We're seeing how it was four years ago. Now, this is commonly documented. No problem with it. But the reason that happens is because light can only travel so fast. Information can only travel so fast. So, my group, I will ask you, how would you answer the age of the Earth question while looking at starlight? If we can only have been here six, twenty, whatever number of thousand years, But we can see 14 billion light years. That should indicate to us that we've been here 14 billion years. How would you answer that, my group? Good luck. Oh, David read something. (laughs) That's good. Yeah, don't give him the answer.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So I asked my dad this after my last Wednesday sermon, and he said that God created a universe that looks old. Would anyone say that that sounds like a pretty reasonable answer? Yeah, okay. Sure. No? Okay. (laughs) All right. That's fine. That's fine. (laughs) No. That's okay. Y'all have an answer? If not, I'll go on. I'm sorry. What do you mean? Mhm. Sure. Mhm. He created mature. Yeah. Okay, so the most common solution to this problem is that God created an old universe, and to some extent he did. So if we look at Adam and Eve, they probably weren't like 3 and 4 when he created them. Like there's pretty good evidence that they were that they were growing up. God said that you're given uh, authority and dominion over everything. Uh, You can eat any of the wild plants. So obviously there were plants that were blooming and and had fruit. So to an extent, God really did create an old universe. Tom, let's go to the next one uh, for me. So this is the traditional proof that says, well, uh, if we can see 14 billion light years into space, that would to common knowledge indicate that the universe is 14 billion years old. So Well, we just think God created the universe old. God made it look like it's been there for 14 billion years. God created fully grown trees. God created sediment layers in the earth. He gave us the appearance of being here for a very long time. That theory has a a problem to it. In the early 1900s, there was a guy named Count Victor Lustig. Victor Lustig was, in short, a con man. He ended up, he's my favorite story from the 1900s. He sold the, sold the Eiffel Tower twice to the same guy. <laughs> after this, after he sells the Eiffel Tower twice to the same guy, they figure out, oh, this guy can't sell the Eiffel Tower. So what he does is he comes to America because obviously, like, people are out for his head. Like, you don't just pay for the Eiffel Tower and not get it and not be upset, you know? So he comes to America, and his greatest con in America is this. So he has this, this box. It's this big wooden box, and it's mahogany. It's got jewels. It's got levers and buttons that you've got to push. And what this box does, if you put a dollar in it, in six hours, it replicates that dollar. It gives you that dollar back. So what he would do is he would get some wealthy gentleman in a hotel. This sounds so stupid now talking about it, but people fell for this. by the truckloads. He'd put $100 in. You wait six hours. He pushes some buttons, pushes some levers, talks about some science gobbledygook, and sure enough, $200 bills come out. Victor Lustig sells this box. Obviously, the guy, as he figures it out, he's very upset. When people show us something that isn't real, we call them con artists or worse, liars. If we look into the universe and say we've been here, it doesn't matter, say we've been here a million years, a long, long time, but we can see 14 billion years into the past, what that means is we're seeing things that never actually happened. If we can only see a million years distant, we can only look a million years in the past, but we're seeing things from 14 billion years ago, it means God made stuff up. And what do we call it when people show us something that isn't real? We call them con artists or liars. So the traditional proof is to say, well, when God created the universe, he made it old. And with earth, that's fine. But when you get out into space, it means that God's showing us things that don't exist. God is, and this is what atheists say, he's a con artist and a liar. So here's a better solution. Tom, go and hit that next slide for me. It's interesting to point out that everyone has a problem with the age of the universe, not just Christians. The most hardcore atheists have a problem. They call it the horizon problem. So here's how this works. We, let's say we are right here in the universe. Over here, 14 billion light years away, we see that it is one degree Kelvin. That's really cold. It's negative 272 degrees Celsius, like negative 500 something Fahrenheit. Super duper cold, okay? Over here, way on the other side of the universe, 14 billion light years away from us, it's still 1 degree Kelvin. That is a huge problem for evolution. Here's why. So for something to be the same temperature, it has to share information. It has to share light. If we've been here 14 billion years, and we can see 14 billion years this way, it's 1 degree Kelvin. We can see 14 billion years this way, 1 degree Kelvin. They're the same temperature, but they're 28 billion light years away from each other. That means, in the tra- in the traditional view, they haven't had enough time to share light. They can't be the same temperature. We have the wrong dating of the universe. So the evolutionary, the naturalist solution to this is called inflation. Now, this is amazing. I love inflation. Here's how this works. So I've got two dots on a balloon here i don't know if any of you can see those two dots on a balloon let's say these are i don't care a mile apart or however far so when i blow this up did the dots move yeah kind of i mean they didn't like transport themselves but the space in between the dots expanded this is how evolu- how inflation works so the theory is when the universe began it was very small Just a few, maybe not even light years across, it may have just been a few miles across. We really don't know. It was very tiny. Possibly could have even fit inside the palm of your hand. Light obviously had time to travel to all of the corners of it. Light travels 186,000 miles a second. If if the universe is inside of your, if it can fit in your hand, light can make that journey a couple of times. But what happened is the universe, for reasons that we don't know or understand yet, kind of exploded. It expanded. It inflated. It stretched out really, really, really fast. And this is how two temperatures on the opposite sides of the universe can be the same. They've shared light in the past. In the early stages of the universe, they shared light, shared information, and that's why they're the same temperature. This actually solves the age of the earth problem for us. And, even better, it's supported by Scripture. If in the beginning God created a small universe where light could travel to all the parts of it, and then he spread it out, well, that would solve all of our age of the universe problems. And even better, there are 16 Bible verses that use the phrase, stretches out the heavens. So if we're talking about the age of the universe, in regards to, oh gosh, we can only see, or we can see 14 billion years, but we've only got time for 20 of those. It's because God stretched out the heavens. And what I think is interesting is this kind of goes back to the verses we talked about last week, supporting the evidence of the Bible. We're just now figuring out what the Bible said 16 times. Is that not evidence for an intelligent creator? So let's talk about one more thing, and this is the most common. Tom, go ahead and go to the next one. The idea that truth is relative. And you might have heard these phrases before. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Or what's right for you isn't right for me. Or maybe even you're a product of your own upbringing. You just reflect your cultural truth. Have any of you ever heard that? Super common right now. Super common. My test group, how would you refute it? Hate to put you on the spot, but I don't really. Answer in 30 seconds. Yeah, keep the answer to 30. Answer in 10, but keep the answer to 30. Okay, what you got right now?
1: I think it's two, four, ten. Well, the issue that you get into is absolute truth is God. Okay, that argument does not work with some non-believers. Sure, <laughs> right. Mhm. Okay. But then that still does not help them
0: understand where you're coming from because they're going to know you're crazy. Mm-hmm.
1: Gotcha. Uh because that's the human part because the man man wants to be God mm-hmm. Satan. Yeah. And just don't want to give that up to somebody else telling him what to do or mm-hmm. how to feel or whatever. I mean, that's the stuff that we're getting into right now with universalism and pluralism. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So in regards to the absolute truth, and this is very popular, and, and I would say even growing increasingly more so. Uh, before this sermon, I was joking with someone that, you know, this is a safe space not Like, you've heard that. Like, oh, a safe space, safety, or whatever. The truth is relative. What's true for you is not true for me. And I only really have uh, one response to this. So Tom, if you will go to the next slide. What's awesome about this is that this gets funnier the longer you look at it, because we can all see a little bit of our grandmothers in her. Uh, <laughs> so, Tom, go to the next slide for me. So, here's how we refute this. So, I, I put up three statements, and three most, common, most commonly here. Uh, the first one is, there's no such thing as absolute universal truth. The question to respond to that with, is that an absolute universal truth, that there's no absolute universal truth? And they're going to say, well... Yeah, probably. Okay, then your argument's invalid. There are universal truths. If they say no, there's not, your argument's still invalid because it's not a truth unless it applies everywhere. So, is there are there are no universal truths? Is that a is that true for everybody? Okay, your argument just falls apart at that point. The next one we hear a lot is what's right for you isn't right for me. We hear this one a lot, but there's tons of things that are right and wrong for both of us. So if we oppress people, if we steal food, usually the people you hear this argument from fall on one side of the political spectrum. So they probably believe it's wrong for both of us to like Donald Trump. Whatever it is, there are things universally agreed on that it is wrong for everyone to do. In this person's eye, who's saying, well, what's right for you isn't right for me, it's probably wrong for everyone to oppress him or her. That would be what's called A universal truth, something that's right and wrong for everyone. Argument falls apart. Now the most, uh, the one I hear a lot, is you're just a product of your upbringing, a product of your culture. This is true to an extent. This is true. I wouldn't have gotten saved as a kid if I hadn't been brought up in the culture I was. That's fine. But being brought up in a culture does not prevent you from learning the truth. It does not matter where you are born at. I do believe things now that I was not taught as a child. I believe parts of the Bible differently than I learned growing up, and that's okay. Because, yes, to an extent, we cannot escape our culture as children, but as adults, we are able to learn the truth. Now, what you'll notice is anyone who um, purports these arguments, it's almost always done in an in an attempt to excuse their behavior. I'll tell you this: I have brought atheists to Christ. Muslims to Christ, one Mormon or Jehovah's Witness, I don't remember. I've never brought anyone to Christ who says this. It's not because their argument is irrefutable, it's because usually when people are saying this, they are actively denying logic. They're actively denying truth, trying to excuse some part of their life or escape truth entirely. And that means they're probably not willing to listen. Doesn't mean you shouldn't try. But just a heads up, next time your kid or grandkid says to you, oh, what's right for you isn't right for me, they're probably outside the realms of logic. (laughs) Truth has failed them. (laughs) They're outside of that. So next slide. Here are your tasks for the rest of your life. We are continuing the war. We have looked into the camp of the enemy. Their arguments have fallen apart. Now we must chase them until the kingdom comes. The first thing I want you to do for the rest of your life is always encourage questions. Always. It doesn't matter what they are, especially for my generation and younger. Because what happens is when we don't hear answers, we go find them. And if they're not answers you provide, then they probably won't, won't be answers you approve. Encourage questions. Allow your children or friends or grandchildren or whoever to ask you about the existence of God. Because I guarantee you, if they're not bringing that question to you, they're taking it to their science teacher. And I'm just going to let you guess what's going to be said there. They're taking it to their 14-year-old friends in middle school who are only going to repeat what their parents say, which statistically has a very low chance of being Christian. Encourage these questions. Feel free to ask about the age of the earth. Feel free to ask about the truth of the Bible. Feel free to ask what this prophecy applies to. Feel free to ask me, is there absolute truth or is God real? Or did Jesus die? Or did Jesus rise? Because if they don't get those answers, they will go somewhere else and probably get answers you don't approve of. The second thing I want you to start doing, super easy, use Google. If you have a phone, just like this one, maybe, probably nicer. <laughs> if you have a phone, you have access to 99.999% of all of the information humanity has ever known it is so easy to look up on Google, even on Facebook. Heaven forbid you do this. It is so easy to look up arguments against atheism, arguments against evolution, arguments against Islam, evidence for Christianity. So easy to do. If you have a phone or don't have to have a phone that's connected to the Internet, if you have a phone or can use Facebook, even if it's just like a caveman, all right? if you're just barely getting by on social media, You have enough technical know-how to type in evidence of Christianity and read it. First thing I want you to do, start encouraging questions. Second, start using Google. Third, do not be afraid to say, I don't know. Let me look it up. To anyone, whether this can be your colleague at work or your friend or your children or your grandchildren or whoever, don't be afraid to say, you know what, I've never heard that before. Or, I don't have an answer to that yet, but will you give me five minutes? I'll go and look it up real quick, and we'll talk about it together. Don't be afraid to admit that you don't know sometimes. There are tons of things that I don't know. When I first heard their argument from improbability, it was tough. I did lose sleep. But the last thing I want you to do, and this goes right along with what we're saying, you should trust the Bible. It's proven itself to be a reliable historical document several times over. It says that there's a God, and we have extremely good evidence that there is. We have very little evidence that God doesn't exist. The Bible says that we were created specially, not evolved up from soup. We have extremely good evidence that that's the case. There is horrible, horrible evidence that we evolved up. The Bible has proven itself a reliable historical document. What I want you to do, no matter what questions you get, no matter what you hear, from TV, or from movies, or whoever, wherever. The Bible has proven itself to be true. Just give it a chance before you stop believing it. Are there any questions? I, I will actually, like, I will literally take your questions. Any questions? Awesome, let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Thank you, God, that you are not just the way, you are not just the life, you are the truth that we can lean on. Lord God, I pray that you help us to go out from here brave, emboldened, because we have seen the best arguments of the enemy, the ones most dangerous to your people, that your people know the least about, and we have emerged victorious. And that is not by our might, but that is because every day, you are the truth, and you allow us to see that and to walk in that. So, Lord God, I pray that you help us not have fear, but to go out here with boldness, increase our knowledge, and as Peter writes, always have a reason for the hope that is within us. In Jesus' name, amen.